Hi, welcome to episode 20 of Deep Feels. Hi. <coughs> oh, did it. I'm your host, Liam Garrow. This is episode 20. Guys, today, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you guys listen in on my interview with Brandon Hackett. He's a lovely gentleman and is also sort of, um, you know, a, a piece in this rolling out of... Uh, interviews as we sort of build up to the opening of the new second city main stage show everything's come undone every no wait the best is yet to come undone i was like i just had the smallest stroke as i was saying the title I'm like that's not right but it's close um i don't know why i have like this very like dull throbbing headache and i've had it for like the last eight hours Oi. um Brandon and I chit chat about we really kind of cover the listen we talk about the weather and then we also talk about uh you know him being in the U.S. while the American election was happening so we really cover a lot of ground um he's a wonderful guy you can follow him uh on Twitter at uh oh I'm pretty sure it's at Brandon Hackett I bet you that's it um and today is the opening of the best is yet to come undone. So by all means, go to uh, secondcity.com Toronto to go uh, procure your tickets. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful show. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything going on with me that that's exciting and new that I can share. I don't really think so. I just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm also buying time to see if I can like stretch this cord of the microphone far enough so that I can take it into my room to check my phone to see if that is actually Brandon Hackett's Twitter handle. Cause I wonder if it's also like, it's like Brandon R Hackett or like, do you know what I mean? Like if there's like an initial again, I feel like there's not, but also what if there is, um, I feel like, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm kind of doing follow up implementation with you know stuff after that reading and i'm kind of like reworking the script and um you know listening to feedback and having my eyes be open of and then also like it is just at brandon hackett <laughs> for you having my eyes be open to like certain things that make you feel like such an idiot like that's that is the like the shitty thing about hearing feedback from people when it comes to your writing is just like <laughs> the note that people give you it's once they actually give you the note you're like oh yeah god that's so fucking obvious and then why didn't i think of that and then i also have this kind of thing well surely people will think then that because i didn't implement that and this like bl- like in some instances blaringly obvious thing that i must be like an idiot and you're like no that's just how it goes it's so hard to fucking have like objectivity in the throes of doing something anyway this is my chit chat with Brandon. As always, spread this podcast around, rate, review, and subscribe. And uh, guys, have a great week. Enjoy my chat with Brandon. Goodbye. Well, no one told me just how to get there. But when I get there, I know. Because I'm taking it step by step. But it is like with.
without saying butch, like it just sort of looks like you are kind of playing with a kind of like uh I don't even know what to say, but there was like a Freddie Mercury kind of Ooh, like, thank you. Like, yeah, I don't know. You kind of look like Freddie Mercury. Um, it's the mustache and the <laughs> shorter hair. Now that I have, this is what we're chatting the shorts, about. The shorts and the like hair. You've got hairy. hairy I do. Hair. I'm a hirsute person, and I just was gonna say I'm pulling my, my phone only to mention that it's October twentieth mm-hmm. at three seventeen p.m. and I'm in shorts. Hey, that's uh, that's Toronto now. Um. I need you to know every podcast um, so far that I've started, every episode <clears throat> has basically been like a light comment on the state of the world that has always spiraled down into like, oh no, <laughs> like it's just so um, brutal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even, you know, when I came into your apartment today, we immediately just were like, wow, the world's so sad right now. Yeah. Yeah. The world is brutal. Yeah. Um, but you... I'm no, so you know, keep saying the thing that you were gonna say. <laughs> no, I, I just I, I feel like I uh, have to strive to distract myself from just the uh, every the overwhelming deluge of emotions <laughs> that. Yeah, well, I mean, and you quite literally just came back from uh, a little vacay in San Francisco. San Francisco. Now, but being in the states mm-hmm. is and and being in a place as progressive politically as San Francisco, did you sort of get? I mean, I guess I won't even attribute a descriptor, but rather kind of what sense did you get by being there sort of now mm-hmm. under the Trump regime? Uh, what sense did I get about the sort of... Uh, I guess the overall feeling of just mm-hmm. being there, because you've been there before. I've never been to San Francisco before. <gasps> oh, wait, this was... That's right. You had wanted to go before, but this yes. was your first time. This was my first time, yeah. Um, But you've been to other... P- uh, spots in the states before that you know are fairly left leaning politically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but did being in San Francisco, not that you would have anything to compare it to in terms of previous visit, but mm-hmm. did it feel different? Like, here's an example: mm-hmm. when I went to New York last, it was in uh, March 2017. Mm-hmm. So Trump would have like just been mm-hmm. uh, uh, he would have just had his inauguration two months prior, mm-hmm. and I will say like. Flying into the states and then being in New York to me did energetically feel different. I was in the states uh, during the election. <gasps> oh my god, that's right! I yeah. totally forgot about that. That was my first uh, vacation, um, first vacation week during my first run at Second City. Oh my god! And that's right. uh, I planned this big trip uh, for myself, so I wanted to go to Boston because I'd never been. So I wanted to spend a couple days there. I wanted to spend maybe like a day and a half in Provincetown, uh, which is a uh, super gay town. Uh, and I was so excited for it. And uh, I wanted to end in New York City. Um, so just a huge, uh, you know, odyssey. <laughs> huge <laughs> sort of like, you know, liberal city uh, gay odyssey. Uh, but I was in Boston when the election happened. That was the second day, second or third day that I was in the States. And it was... Uh, so exciting leading up to it. It was great. I spent part of the election day at a gay bar when uh, 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 they were doing the counts. And uh, when I was at that bar, Hillary was leading in, uh, what was it? Uh, what were the three the three states? There was... Uh, so the, uh, the three that they kind of always pay attention to are California, uh-huh. um, Florida, and... Was it California? It was like, I think it was Florida... Maybe Ohio and... Oh, you're talking about early on when they were kind of just like 
mm-hmm. kind of starting eastwards, then making their way west for the count, right? right yeah, like the battleground uh, battleground states. Um, I think maybe Ohio. I don't know. The whole thing is a real blur. Yeah, Virginia or something like that. Can, uh, I hope that you can't hear my cat on the microphone. No, you can't. These microphones are very um like. You got to keep them pressed up to your mouth. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Because, um, uh, like, they don't pick up anything, like, here. Okay, okay. Yeah. For those of you just uh, listening, he, Liam, just put the microphone about a foot away from his mouth when he said here. Yeah, over here. And down here. <laughs> um, so you were in the. But yeah, yeah. So she was leading. So she was leading, and it was so much fun. It was such a. Uh, I was in this sort of warm gay bar environment, and everyone was sort of like friends and sharing beers and uh she was leading in one of the three sort of battleground states uh so i just i decided to leave because i was just tired i'd been walking around all day got to my hotel and by the time i arrived in the lobby the tv in the lobby had shown that trump had overtaken her there uh and uh as well as in the other two battleground states and uh it was looking like he was going to win uh, yeah. And uh, so he, I basically was in my hotel room for the rest of that night, just sort of uh, anxiously watching. Uh, and uh, and uh, and then he won. The next day he won, and I I could feel definitely a uh, palpable pall over uh, everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah. all of the cities that I went to for re- for the rest of my of the rest of that trip. Uh, anytime I would like open Grinder or Scruff or something and talk to someone, uh, you know, we would exchange the sort of opening pleasantries like, "Hey, how's it going? How are you doing?" Uh, and yeah, are you circumcised? <laughs> yes, are you circumcised? How tall was your father? Also, can you believe about Trump? Yes. Yeah. Well, I would say like, "How's it going?" And uh, the first thing they would always say back to me would be, uh, "Would be, uh, oh, uh, still recovering from uh, <laughs> earlier this week." Everyone was uh, in this state of shock, and uh, no one wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's yeah. bad news when it infiltrates the sex apps. Mm-hmm. That's when you know it's dire. Oh, yeah. When people want to talk about politics and not uh, the politics of dancing. Um, or politics. Politics. Here we go. Poly, poly index. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> and so did being in San Francisco kind of... Would you say there was still that kind of energy hanging over the city? Do you feel like... I don't know if I necessarily felt that. I mean, I feel like uh, without having necessarily uh, a feeling of San Francisco prior to that, uh, to, to the election, I mean, I I feel like people had sort of settled in to a degree <laughs> right. uh, into the sort of like current state of affairs. I mean, uh, every so often I'd kind of walk around and I'd see like... Um, a political poster or something like that or, or whatever. But I, I think because San Francisco is such a like uh, liberal or progressive enclave, you know, you had people kind of going about there. I believe it's their... pronounced enclave. Enclave. I'm pretty sure it's enclave, <laughs> but all right. All right, all right. Okay, okay. Well, agree to disagree. I mean, uh, I am, remember, the one who has an eighth grade education, so you have to listen <laughs> to me. I mean, but you also, I mean, whatever. Number one, uh, Liam, you're way smarter than I am. Number two, uh, oh, you no, live in you, you from you're from Ottawa. You got that you got that that authentic Canadian French uh, uh, milieu that you grew yeah. up in. Bonchamp, bon bon Yeah, it is. yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's, That's it. it. Oh, vous parlez le français parisien. Oh oui, uh, parce que tu sais, uh, Poutine est um, uh, parce que aussi du fromage. Ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so sad how much of my French I've lost as a result of moving to Nova Scotia, which also is not an excuse. I absolutely could have 
<laughs> had I wanted to like continue to read in French, yeah, done so, and you know really help to maintain it. But now, right, I know enough French to let someone know that I can't speak it. Really? So you're you're sort of like you've got like an okay, like you're not a like I absolutely could get around someplace, and actually I would go as far as to say I maybe have the kind of um vocabulary where or kind of muscle memory for it now that if i were immersed in it so like if i'm dropped in montreal tomorrow Mm -hmm. i think i would kind of like soak it back up and maybe become more fluent again Mm -hmm. but not unlike anything else like man when you don't keep up with it it moves on without you like it really Mm -hmm. is just like a use it or lose it thing yeah and guess what i didn't use it and guess what i lost it yeah well it's a sort of thing where uh I had really great French training in elementary school, like all through like first grade to whatever, and then I only did grade nine French. And uh, I remember everything I ever learned in French. Uh, I have a, I have whatever pronunciation that I have, uh, but you know I've never been within a, um, within a French sort of like milieu or French like culture or whatever. So uh, I've never really had to speak it conversationally or whenever I do, I can kind of get by, but then I'm very easily surpassed like i'll speak french with um our stage manager uh my friend georgia uh and she grew up in new brunswick sweet georgia brown you mean sweet georgia brown mm-hmm. uh she grew up in new brunswick so is is uh as per that um place is is pretty bilingual and uh she'll speak french very quickly and very whatever and, you know but uh and then i'll speak to her and i'll, I'll like understand bits and pieces of what she'll say but then i'll, I'll i will clearly after a point when we're talking, I will sound like a little child. Right. Well, are you also like me where the second someone starts speaking too quickly, I also cannot understand what they're saying? It used to be mm-hmm. someone could speak very rapidly, as could I, and I could keep up with it. But I think because my ear is so unaccustomed to hearing it, mm-hmm. I'm working that much harder to process what it is yes, that you're saying. Absolutely. Can I also share my hilarious Georgia Brown story? Please. Okay, so one year she was um, stage managing an improv show called, uh, what was it like? Was it True Blue or whatever? It was like- Yeah, the, the Bad Dog? Yeah, and then they, that got into Fringe. Right, yes. And so she was stage managing that show, and then earlier that day, Stacey McGonigal and Jason DeRoss did a sketch show at Fringe called Tonight is Cancelled. Mm-hmm. So then myself, Kevin Vidal went to go see that show, and then- I had not met her before, but we bumped into her. Kevin and George knew each other. Mm-hmm. So we went to seeing that show, then saw True Blue, which I think Kevin was in. And like I said, Georgia was stage managing. But basically, like, the lot of us, like, were hanging out together and then socializing for that day. And then I think, like, a year after, at the next Fringe, I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, Georgia and then she just went I don't know who you are mm-hmm. and I was like oh then forget it <laughs> never mind she was like no 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 like remind me you were and I'm yeah. like and then I just recounted all the details of like you saw tonight's canceled right and then I saw you SM the show and then she was like I just don't remember that and I was like <laughs> oh, okay well bye I mean I'm totally the exact way I I I forget people that I met like a week ago you know, like I have a, I have a degree of face blindness. I feel with like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people that I meet, especially in comedy, because I meet so many people in comedy. Uh, so part of me is just sort of like, 
oh, that was a year ago. I kind of, I totally get it. I remembered. <laughs> yeah, because you were a better person than me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, do you, um, so now, okay, Brandon Hackett just put his tea mug right on the, like, mm-hmm. cusp of his coffee table. It's such a recipe for disaster. I know. I don't want to put it on top of it because it's a crate. It's like an untreated wooden crate, and I don't want to get a ring on it. Um, but you're already putting it on the ledge of it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So, (laughs) my logic is that if I put it on the actual, like, real part of the crate, it's going to be, like, such a glaring, if there's, like, a ring, it'll be, like, a glaring thing. If I put it on the side. But there's already, like, um, a series of numbers written in black permanent marker. Like, what more damage could be done to this crate? Oh, that's part of the style. (laughs) <laughs> and I think a coffee ring would go really well on it. Okay, all right. There we go. You know what? I changed my mind. <laughs> um, also, there's an adorable kitty cat that you have. What's his name? So his name is Pushkin. He's named uh, by my roommate, uh, who is a uh, Slavic literature minor, or has one. Oh, my God. Yeah. We got him. We've been living together for about nine years now. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. For a long time. Uh, in various apartments around the annex. And uh, we got this cat back in 2011, I think it was. And he's uh, he's very lovely. He's kind of, he's a bit, um, <laughs> he's a bit mean. I think the sort of like narrative that I give people, uh, the people backstage over the course of the year and a bit that I've been in Second City is that he is a monster who terrorizes me all the time. I don't know how to control him. Oh. But he's truly he's truly very lovely. Uh, he's just very demanding. Uh, he uh, basically when he wants something knows exactly how to annoy me to get him to do something. Uh, I, I hate that I'm becoming this guy who's just talking about like his cat on the podcast. No, I like it. Uh, great. Uh, so uh, we have this TV over here, this big screen TV sort of deal. And uh, easy, br- Sir brags <laughs> a lot. Jesus. We're big shots. We've got a big, uh, big screen TV. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I'll be watching it. And if he wants like literally anything, if he wants just uh, water or he wants me to pay attention to him, what he'll do is he'll go in front of the TV and then he'll just scratch it. Uh, over and over and over again <laughs> uh, because he's registered that that is the main uh, thing that I occupy my uh, time and brain with. Mm-hmm. Um, or he'll try to like knock down uh, paintings like our like pictures and paintings that we have hung on the walls. So you're going to put him down? We're going to put him down. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> We're doing cool. it today. Oh my God, let's record it. <laughs> um, do you, but you, you cat sit, right? Like you, you cat sit other cats, that sort of thing? Yeah, I do. Um, uh, like a bunch. Are you more of a cat person or a dog person? I think I'm more a person who enjoys people's animals and children mm-hmm. the more I enjoy them. Okay. Like, I think I don't have any real attachment to the premise of an animal or child, but if I enjoy the person whom it belongs to, mm-hmm. I'm more likely to enjoy okay. that animal and or child. Right. Like, I'm not someone who, like, for example, if I see someone walking their dog down the street, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, oh, it's a dog and it's in my way. But then if I recognize the person who it belongs to and I like them very much, I'm like, oh my God, like, it's the it's the dog Autumn. Like my friend has this amazing dog named Autumn, mm-hmm. um, like the most well behaved dog in the world. I'm like, oh my god, and then I'm happy to pet that dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I had to really break it down and categorize it, I think, oh my god, no pun intended, mm-hmm. categorize. Um, I would be a cat person. Yeah, well, they're so low maintenance in a way. Well, yeah, I think in they're ways. they're lower maintenance, and I, um, I enjoy someone who 
not unlike the kind of man I'm attracted to, is very fair weather with whether or not it is deciding to love you or not. <laughs> um, okay. I, I enjoy the um, the up and down of a cat all of a sudden wanting my attention and then deciding it's just done. Right. Um, I enjoy the um, the body language right now of the cat sitting in front of us is quite literally he's seated in front of me with his back turned. Mm-hmm. That I would say is a real emotional manifestation of the bulk of the men I've dated. And every so, yeah, fair enough. Every so often, he's sort of like uh, casting a glance over his shoulder. Like he's literally mm-hmm. looking over his shoulder, like, um, "I want you to know that I'm doing this, <laughs> and I really hope it's registering." Yeah, yeah, that's one of the 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 shittiest things that cats do sometimes is when they um, there was this cat. <laughs> In my uh, when I was living at my uh, in my childhood home, I remember there was this like cat that used to kind of like uh, hang out in my mom's garden, and uh, I was behind like the screen door. I was like a kid, and I saw the cat come in, and uh, it was starting to kind of like dig up the plants or whatever. So I had like a water gun on me. So I remember spraying the cat. The cat saw that, sort of bounced out of the way a little bit, and then took a note of took note of the range of the of the like uh, the water, water gun. gun yeah. Uh, and then just sort of stood exactly where, as far as it could stand, uh, like an inch away from right. the spray, uh, with its back turned to me and sort of looked over its shoulder and just kept doing that, and it drove me bananas. Yeah, well, cats are savvy. That's the yeah. thing. Like, cats have a... Um, they have an, um, a real sense of what's really going to get your goat, mm. whereas a dog's inner monologue is just like, No, I'm a dog! Hi! <laughs> I'm a dog running around. Welcome to this world. I'm a dog. I'm a dog. Oh, I'm scratching at the door. I'm a dog. I also feel like I'm not. Um, this is, this, I feel this is going to get me in trouble. Uh, I'm not that sentimental about pets. Yeah, me neither. Sometimes. Uh, I don't think I'm sentimental about most things. Okay, fair enough. But pets are like living creatures. Yeah. So like every so often, someone will post, and I, I totally get it. I like someone will post something on Facebook where they'll be like. My you know, dog. My dog. Yeah, or like their dog died or something like that, and that's sad. Like I totally, I totally get it. But at the same time, like if my pet died, I would feel sad. But I'd sort of be like, well, you know, Tempest Fugit, <laughs> time flat. You know, like I don't know. I feel like everyone listening to this now is just like, well, he's a psychopath. He's yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's funny. You know, I think I actually can feel people turning off your episode right now mm-hmm. well i think because there is a kind of with you in yeah. knowing you for as long as i have there's a pragmatism that you seem to carry with you in your life okay that is really rooted in a um, very intellectual place and okay. so like you're coming up against something that like for most people is very emotional to you is not as substantial an event because you're able to sort of like process it and break it down mm-hmm. much faster because you sort of um, have the brain that you do. I guess. Yeah. And I also you hate feelings. <laughs> <laughs> feelings are bad. Uh, I mean, that's not untrue, uh, but uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, uh, Again, I would, I, I, you know, I do feel sad. I don't know. You know what I'm starting to do, I've realized? Because, again, I'm like, oh, I'm like you, except for mm-hmm. now in my downtime, I find myself going to the Instagram page, The Dodo, the which Dodo. is all, it's like a compilation of animal videos, but it's not just like, oh, my God, look at my cat playing with its toy. Mm-hmm. It's like um, 
on video someone captured footage of like a dog who was in the middle of drowning and then like a town's worth of people like chained their bodies together to okay. save him like yeah and so and then like they you know saved this dog. <laughs> oh my god maybe that's more of a thing that makes me emotional is like uh oh my god when something delicate is in peril mm-hmm. that strikes my heart right away mm-hmm. it's the okay you know what i like i think last the summer that just passed you know what i saw for the first time what kindergarten cop oh okay okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm enjoying where this uh, story's going okay so obvious have you seen the movie uh years ago okay spoiler alert arnold schwarzenegger he's not a real kindergarten teacher right he's a He's a cop. Cop. Yeah. Right. Okay. Great. Kind of like the title. <laughs> like the title. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, and then there's like, as the film sort of progresses and as it escalates, you know, like there's a kid that's been kidnapped and then he's like on this fucking like water tower thing and he's on this um, ladder climbing up. There's a moment where he like slips mm-hmm. and then he like falls a little bit. And I need you to know, because <laughs> my friends like gathered a bunch of people to watch it's just like a summer movie they have this projector they have this really nice backyard so yeah. we like watch a movie on a projector outside it's so justify nice. it you don't need to justify a good time oh, oh no 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 i'm not trying to justify the good time i'm trying to say like in front of a group of people oh when that kid slipped i went <gasps> oh my god <laughs> right and i really and then the collective of people in the backyard like turned to me and just said like Nothing bad is going to happen to this kid. It's a yeah. fucking PG Schwarzenegger <laughs> movie. There's right. not going to be like a death of a child. But I think I realized that <laughs> like delicate things when they are in danger, yeah. it really actively stresses me out. I, I'm, You know what? I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to be that way too, actually. And I find myself responding very emotionally to weird things that I traditionally have never really I've just written off as sort of like, okay, here's a moment where they're trying to pull it. Uh, like, I found myself caught off guard. Did you watch um, Inside Out? Oh, my God. You mean the movie that I sobbed through? Okay, great. <laughs> well, oh. the one that everyone sobbed through. But oh I, I feel like, I feel like, um, I don't know. It wasn't my favorite Pixar movie, but it was like, it was a good movie. And But I feel like I, I, I I've watched enough Pixar movies to sort of be like, okay, well, here's where... They're going to manipulate manipulate, <laughs> manipulate you. Yeah, and I yeah. sort of get, like, you know, story and story structure, and I, I kind of get, well, all these beats are supposed to be, I get, you know, when they're trying to catch us with... Not catch us. I, that's such, just, no, such, but here's the thing. They kind language. of are, because do keep in mind, it's like anim- animators who are, like, mm-hmm. deliberately creating something to elicit such a specific response from you. Yeah. Like, different, obviously, like, a director in a live-action movie is going to do that to the best of their ability, but ultimately, like, they're working through no pun intended like they're working through the lens of what the actor can do mm-hmm. like you can't actually mold an actor's performance like it just kind of is what it is right but with animation it's like oh you you on purpose made that character's eyes so big yes you know yeah so yeah. you're watching inside out yeah absolutely and uh sort of watching it i was like uh okay this is great this is fine whatever <clears throat> and uh the moment where uh uh spoiler alert uh uh the Bing Bong, yeah, Bing Bong, the imaginary mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said that voiced by like, Richard Kind. Richard Kind, yeah, uh, sacrifices himself so that uh, uh, they I know can, uh, that Joy can sort of you know like boost Rocket up on that. Yeah, like um, uh, I keep wanting to say train, but that's not what it was. Like the not a cart, but like a wagon sort of. That's deal? it. That's the that's the word I was looking for. I couldn't remember what it was, but 
I remember <laughs> the cart. Yeah, oh, such an idiot. <laughs> the shopping cart. I um, remember when they were at Sobeys, and she's like, "I just want to get out of here." Um, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get out of Sobeys. Yeah. Um, uh, at that very moment, uh, I just I just got so emotional <laughs> and started to cry a little bit. Yeah, and I, it was such a surprise to me. I was like, I I, I couldn't I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand why my body was reacting to something that intellectually I understood why it was happening and had anticipated that it would happen. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I've noticed about myself? What? There are certain triggers for me now when I cry. Mm. And that, so I absolutely sobbed mm. when that happened as well. But I've noticed things that make me really emotional now. The golden thread connecting all of it is that when someone makes what I call the grand gesture, like when they do something in the interest of sort of helping to serve this greater good that doesn't necessarily benefit them. Mm-hmm. Like um, like that's even in that moment in the movie, like he is sacrificing himself so that he, you know, Joy can sort of go and find sadness and so that they can sort of mm-hmm. help to recalibrate Riley, this 11 year old girl's, you know, brain and emotion, and all that stuff. Like, so I think part of me, is really affected by that. And then when I look at other things, like I'm trying to think of some off the fly right now. Um, there's a song uh, that Kate and Anna McGarrigal wrote mm-hmm. called Heart Like a Wheel. Their rendition not being the one that I heard first. I heard it first. Um, I heard Linda Ronstadt sing it first because she put it out on a record in the 70s. And that whole song mm-hmm. is about uh, sort of like holding a, holding love for someone that you sort of know will never love you back mm. but it's kind of it's it's sort of like what what's the lyric um like and my love for you is like a sinking ship and my heart is on that ship out in mid-ocean and you're Ooh. just like oh my god yeah like i think someone kind of doing this big thing in the interest of sort of helping someone else even though it doesn't necessarily benefit th- them that's what i'm that's what really gets me mm. also when when I watch um, like dads being really good fathers to their like young sons. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie Kramer versus Kramer? Uh, no, I actually haven't seen it, but I know, I know what it, yeah, I know the stuff. That might be an interesting watch for you. Okay. I'm going to recommend that movie. And I'm also going to recommend, have you seen the way, way back? No, that's recent, right? Yeah. That's like Steve Carell and Tony Collette. Yeah. Okay. 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 So here's the thing. The thing that you and I have in common, mm-hmm. fractured relationships with our fathers. Yes. And I think now as an adult person, um, as I sort of am becoming more emotionally in tune and aware, stuff like that really gets me. Like I yeah. need so so like with Kramer versus Kramer, the thrust of that movie obviously is like Meryl Streep is really at her wit's end. She's in this awful marriage. She feels very isolated as a wife and as a mother and then she just and she just kind of bails mm-hmm. and Dustin Hoffman who up until her leaving has been this very sort of non-present father not a great dad very business minded business focused now has to take care of his son by himself mm. and then the beginning um, chunk of the film is him and his you know six year old son sort of needing to learn like learn about each other mm-hmm. and figure each other out and then build their own lives their own system and there comes a point at I want to say you know minute forty of the movie, mm-hmm. where they um, uh, start to really you know love each other in a more visible way. Mm-hmm. They start kind of uh, 
falling into their own, into their own routine, like they, you can see them start to really um, appreciate one another. Mm-hmm. And it's at that mo- moment of the movie for the rest of the movie onwards is I'm just like crying throughout it. Oh, because yeah. I'm just like, oh my god! Like yeah. I, I'm just very struck by, um, like a father now needing to be present for his child and for me it's totally just the romanticism of like oh yeah. my god what if my dad had done that right yeah obviously you know yeah that's... So that might be a tricky watch for you i'm just saying right now yeah maybe i mean I, I think um i definitely i think stuff about like human goodness and that sort of thing and like relationships actually even like redemptive stories and that sort of thing really kind of get me like they start to i can feel myself this is so I, I speak so like clinically but it's like uh that's when i start to feel emotional that sort of thing i get really uh affected by mother-son relationships in movies mm. i those really those really um those really affect me can you think of an example well <laughs> this is such an awful one but uh the babadook which i've not seen but i hear it's wonderful it's yeah it's great it's really really good and it's um you know, whatever uh, everyone knows, the 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 Babadook creature is just a uh, just symbolizes grief or whatever. It's a stand-in for grief and depression and and mourning and that sort of thing. But watching the Babadook, I, I didn't really know that. Uh, just going into it, uh, it's sort of about this uh, this mother raising her really young son, and uh, it's sort of in the um, in the shadow of uh, a uh, uh, the loss of her partner her husband who passed away in a car crash uh, that they were both in that basically triggered uh she was pregnant and then had to give birth and whatever and been raising this the son all around so then uh, uh the babadook is a sort of creature that manifests uh uh uh, and it symbolizes her sort of like uh, uh the depression caused by her grief and uh sort of like you know resentment in a way of her of her son and, and that sort of thing and uh watching her kind of like fall apart gradually over the course of the movie uh i uh i i remember just sort of sitting there and being like oh my god <laughs> this is why like in a way feeling that that was uh my mom or seeing it seeing that sort of a, as sort of like my relationship with my mom not necessarily she resented me or like that we had the same circumstances where her husband died in a car crash and then right I was... but when you're watching i think maybe there's something in like watching um the struggle of a single parent yes really kind of strikes a chord yeah and and sort of thinking about like all of those things where i don't know sometimes i think about like well, you know, my, 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 I was an accident. Like a lot of people are accidents. And I, don't, I don't take that personally because for a lot, of, a, a lot of my life, I just thought everyone was an accident. I didn't think pregnancy was ever intended. But I was an accident. You know, my mom uh, didn't end up going to grad school like she wanted to. And then obviously, the, you know, the marriage sort of folded. Uh, I mean, I hope my mom ever listens to this because I'm just airing her dirty laundry. Uh, but, um, you know all of those things. I sort of think about like, oh, what are what are what are all of the things that she had to sort of give up on to sort of like raise uh, a son, and then you know, there uh, some like mental health stuff that happened around my teen years and, and that sort of thing, and kind of watching that movie and watching that sort of mother unravel a little bit and, and become more and more kind of um, unhinged. I suppose I found extremely. I was just taken back to like a period in my life when, you know, I felt kind of my relationship with my mom uh, crumbling because of like mental health sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, so that really kind of really affected me. <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't just the sort of like, um, yeah, The Babadook was just such an effective uh, movie. 
to me in an unexpected way. Have you uh, met your father? I have, yes. No, no. We, he, we, my parents were married for a couple of years, and then uh, they split up, and then my dad um, left the country when I was seven or so, and I saw him kind of intermittently. Mm-hmm. But I haven't talked to him in uh, about, s- yeah, almost 17 years, actually. I haven't talked to him since I was like 12 or so. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think he lives here now. Uh, so it's like a matter of time before I guess I kind of like r- reach out or something like that. But uh, Has yeah. he made the attempt to reach out to you? He has. He had before I realized he was. And I think he was doing it through my mom. And my mom was not passing on the message <laughs> uh, or the messages. Uh, and uh, How old were you at that point? Uh, this was when I was going to university. When I was probably about like 18, 19. It was when he was starting to, when he moved back uh, to Canada. And uh, uh I think tried to kind of like get back in touch. Any resentment on your mom's part for not passing those messages? Well, any resentment I have for my mom? Not passing that on? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I mean, again, you know, uh, once again, I hope she doesn't listen to this, but also she doesn't know what the internet is. So, um, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Thank goodness she is a Luddite. Luddite for um, life. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there there are obviously things that, like, you know, uh, elements of resentment that I, uh, this is like therapy, uh, elements of resentment that uh, uh, I can have, like, I love my mom very much, uh, uh, but. Um, hey, man, it's not about not loving her. You get to love someone and be angry at them. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, I think there are things that she does to kind of maintain a degree of control over uh my life or whatever, and she does it under the guise of uh, protection. protection. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of 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 protection from whatever like she knows better and sometimes she'll 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 talk to me and go on these sort of like uh, these long sort of drawn out rants about like people she's suspicious about and then she'll interject with like you know I'm not trying to I'm not trying to scare you and I'll sh- sort of keep going on and it's like you're not scaring <laughs> me you know I am you know I'm a thirty year old person with you know a sense of uh, a, you know kind of a sense of the world i feel yeah you're like and i've been independent in it now for a while yeah you have siblings or no uh no i have no siblings uh i have like a couple half siblings but but i th- but none that your mother was raising no see i think there i think there is something not certainly not all the time mm-hmm. uh but i think for certain people mm-hmm. when you're the only child there's a kind of I think the reins kind of get held onto a little too tightly mm-hmm. because the sense of protection that you have over you know, like your one child is so strong. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the thing that you he- tend to hear a lot about with uh parents when they have, you know, more than one child is they tend to <laughs> they tend to kind of get a little more relaxed with, with each, each kid, you yeah. know what I mean? Um different obviously you're just the one mm-hmm. um and and also if your mom is kind of also you know your for your entire childhood in particular uh trying to facilitate a kind of protection for you from this person mm-hmm. like it's so i think it's a very hard switch to flip off i'm saying this by the way not in defense of her i, I oh, I'm, no. I'm just saying like i i can empathize with the impulse to um want to protect your child mm-hmm. and maybe not having the awareness that it's actually not protecting it is actually quite controlling yes and and 
overbearing. I totally, I totally get it too. Yeah. I mean, I uh, also she kind of had to live through that marriage, and uh, there's obviously stuff that as a child I was probably not privy to uh, or aware of uh, that w- went on um, at the time. As for you know, to uh, uh, to kind of explain perhaps why she uh was a bit more is reticent the word reticent about uh uh uh, uh or hesitant uh, about uh getting this man back in my life mm-hmm. but uh so i i totally i totally get it um you you're second born though right yeah to a sister who um also a half sibling mm-hmm. but also 8 years my senior but we grew okay. up in the same house mm-hmm. because um you know both of our fathers were examples of uh, fathers who, for different, in different uh, capacities, mm-hmm. or I should say, for in different ways, uh, you know, sort of walked out on the family and then, but shared <laughs> an equal lack of interest in mm-hmm. being present for their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dads. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange thing. And I don't, and, you know, because you and I are approximately the same age, and we would have been a part of, I, I guess. I feel like I'm like 30 years older than you. <laughs> um, You're not. You're actually not. And if you want to sit down and do the math, it's a, it's a. You're 26? That's exactly right. Okay, great. So I'm like, what? 75 years older than you? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? You look so good for someone who's 90. That's I'm 101. You did it. Um, <laughs> it's all my years of doing math. But. I think I also like that every time you mention your age, mm. it, it gets incrementally bigger. You're like, I yeah. am 150, and you know what? I feel great. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting how you know we would have been, mm, maybe not the first generation. Maybe we were, but certainly at, at the very least, the second generation of like. You know, because the first wave of divorces becoming far more frequent would have happened in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, then with that, the concept of being a single parent would have been far more common. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but weirdly, in the um, neighborhood I grew up in, not only a lot of single parents, but in particular, a lot of single mothers. Yeah. So weirdly, I never felt self-conscious about that until I started going <laughs> to school. And actually, weirdly, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say weirdly, but my mom does. She did tell me the story once of when I started school. She's like, you know, like before, you know, you were like a like a pretty happy go lucky like positive child. And she said, and you know, you still were that when you started going to school. But then you know, you did just get a little sadder. Oh really? Oh. <laughs> because I rem I do remember, uh, you know, I remember my first day of school. Like yeah. I actually do remember, uh, my first day of, uh kindergarten oh maybe actually i don't i think i might be conflating it with another memory but i do recall Mm -hmm. like first like um being in elementary school and then going to your first day with you know when your parents take you Mm -hmm. and i do remember looking around and seeing certain like a lot of kids with their mom and dad and just kind of going huh and la tristesse happened happened. (laughs) brandon hackett said something so hilarious before we started recording where we were trying to like pinpoint the quality of like what many a gay men share yes (laughs) and he said you said something so funny you were like yeah i think part of it is just like i don't know the underlying la tristesse of it of it all and i was like oh my god that's exactly it yeah that's like like looking out a window with a gentle sigh yeah it's like the melancholy of it it's the sensitivity of it 
the 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 uh, the fully tapping into the mono no aware of it all. The it's a, what? It's a Japanese term for oh, uh, the impermanence off. of all things. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of gentle sadness you feel at things sort of uh, uh, passing. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah. And I think I I then became an in a way that I wasn't completely aware of self conscious right of not having a dad but i also think it must have been harder like because your experience with your dad actually mirrors one that happened with uh there were three girls who lived in my neighborhood Mm -hmm. the o'neill vites going oldest to youngest Mm. holly stacy and anna sounds like a salinger novel continue uh i mean (laughs) you just get ready um and they so like their dad was you know on the scene sort of up until Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess, you know, Holly would have been, let's just say, nine, Stacy was seven, Anna was five. Mm-hmm. And then he just really pieced out. And I remember being seven and thinking, like, I think that probably is harder for them mm-hmm. because they knew him. Yes. Like, there's a thing now being taken away, mm-hmm. so you're missing them. I remember having that awareness then. So I can imagine for you being a kid who has a father who's present mm-hmm. and then is not. Mm-hmm. That must feel terrible. Yeah, but I I was like two. I mean, I, w- I was two years old. But he that. But you said that last time you spoke to him was when you were twelve. Uh, yes, last time I spoke to him was when I was twelve. But uh, but uh, he was basically out of the picture after I was two years old. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was kind of he was living in some sort of like basement apartment uh, elsewhere in Scarborough, uh, and uh, uh, I remember it being hard initially when my parents were just sort of fighting all the time uh but once they um once they officially split up eventually things kind of normalized like my situation sort of normalized and this was sort of a new status uh so it was um i think i acclimated to it pretty uh here's the thing is like i feel like uh right now the state of my life right now I only remember when I remember I have a father. That's a surreal moment to me. It's it's sort of like, oh right, there's a man. <laughs> there's a man who also gave DNA, um, to to so, so that I can be in the world, and he's still alive and he's here and he's just sort of around. And that's that's such a major, like half of my half of my DNA basically comes from from this person that's still around that I have had no real actual contact with for a long time. So then that that sort of feels very. Uh, surreal and weird to me yeah i'm i can imagine it must feel odd when you feel like you have the illusion of a parent mm-hmm. kind of around, like you have the pr- you have the premise of a father mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like yeah. he's out there but he's not doing anything for you and do, is it also strange because i mean you so i've uh i've not actually met your mom but i have sat immediately beside her oh you right. very kindly when you uh gave me one of your plus one tickets for um your first show at second city right yeah um and um and i remember a woman sitting beside me and before mm-hmm. honestly seconds into her sitting down i clocked her and i was like i'm pretty sure that's brandon hackett's mom because mm-hmm. you do quite look like your mom that's what i hear yeah um uh, i feel like i see that now and uh and i bring that up only because you know, it's funny because you talk about having there be this person out there with whom, you know, you share 50% of your DNA. Mm-hmm. Certainly my experience as well. And yet, I, though, grew up in a house where I was not physically represented. Right. Okay. You know, because I look, not to say that it was something as extreme as, <laughs> like, 
um, okay, I was a child from India growing up in like a white Canadian family, mm-hmm. but I was a very European featured, like olive skin, dark haired child mm-hmm. growing up around like Irish white face people. <laughs> My mom literally, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a kind of security I think that kids can get when they have that mm-hmm. sort of, I see myself in you kind of thing. Um, do you, I mean, did you, f- and because, so I'm aware of not having that. Mm-hmm. Did, were you aware of, um, did you have a kind of that sort of security mm-hmm. kind of growing up where you're like, yes, I had this other person who's away, but I feel quite connected to my mother. I see myself in her mm-hmm. or like, are you behaviorally like, are, would you say you're similar to your mom? Uh, in certain ways, I mean, uh, uh, I feel like in terms of like demeanor and behavior, I'm very different from from my mom. My mom is very kind of like type A and very, uh, uh, like her first sort of like reaction to something is like rage, and she's very like she she needs to be in control of a situation sort of deal. And I think my personality was formed very much in uh opposition in 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 sort of response to that, mm-hmm. where I feel like I'm way more uh, docile and uh, laissez-faire and, and, you know, uh, I I just don't want to step on anyone's toes or offend anyone, you know? Like, I just, I honestly just want people to have a nice time all the time, um, even if it's at my expense sort of thing. Uh, I would say... um, I mean, there's a period where when I think our voices sounded the same. There was like a weird, uh, this is maybe a weird thing to bring up, but I remember answering the phone when I was like between the ages of 11 and 12 and uh, people would just start talking to my mom. <laughs> like I just, I'd be like, hello. That happened like, to me too. Yeah. Oh, did it really? Oh my God. Well, because I think, I mean, obviously, I think that's pretty common when you're, you know, a younger kid. So you, you obviously have a higher pitched voice, mm-hmm. but in particular, when I went to answer the phone, mm-hmm. maybe not unlike you, like you want to sound pleasant and cheerful on the phone. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, like, hello. And then my voice would go up. And then people, not unlike you, mm. would just be like, hey, Colleen. Okay, so <laughs> I just need, and then I would have to actually cut them off and be like, I will get her for you. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, this is a boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a male gendered person, but okay, real quick. And do you know what's so funny though? One time I made a deliberate attempt when I was like, 13 or 14 to yeah. be like okay when i answer the phone i'll lower my voice so someone doesn't think that i'm <laughs> my mom right so i like i'm 14 i answer the phone i'm like hello and someone goes heidi can you put your mom on the <laughs> phone so they thought i was like my sister, you know yeah. th- i they thought i was like my 22 year old smoker sister <laughs> who was just like hey <laughs> um <laughs> you meant so nice. you mentioned kind of having a personality that's very much sort of in reaction to your mother is mm. that something that you were aware of as a kid uh yeah for sure for sure that's a huge pressure to put on yourself uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it just kind of had naturally happened. I think what like, I think because I love how this whole podcast now is just like mom talk. Um, I mean, listen, it was bound to happen. <laughs> I I think um, I think just naturally because I kind of grew up a sensitive boy anyway, like a sensitive boy who who honestly, uh, because he was not great at being one of the other boys. Uh, um, 
kind of you know was given a bit more sensitive sort of things when confronted with a sort of like more like a uh, 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 domineering kind of type a mom just naturally i feel like i kind of like uh it kind of aggresses your impulse to maybe kind of retreat inward yes yeah exactly. I, maybe there's something about like um what is it about like um there are oh god i can't remember the i can't remember the name of the plant but there are those there are those plants like when you touch the leaves they all kind of retreat inside of themselves oh my god and i wonder I if like one of those plants. like i kind of wonder if as a kid like you're that sensitive to like someone just kind of um you know uh grazes you Mm -hmm. and then if you're kind of almost like an exposed nerve and you just kind of like retreat inside of yourself in in being that way though like you mentioned kind of not being like other boys i certainly was a sensitive boy and definitely a soft boy did you i want to know lil liam i want to know this lil liam who just suddenly one day (laughs) developed a a palpable sadness oh my god well i mean i have to say i was also a very like happy to be on my own kind of kid right were you yeah but well it was also by necessity right i was an only child right living in a separate city from where i went to school ah see and now my obviously yes i have an older sister but like a seven-year like or wait, how it would be a fifteen-year-old is in no rush to hang out with a seven-year-old, right? Right. So it's <laughs> like, you know, by the time I was a cognizant child, Heidi was out dating mm-hmm. and doing things, and you know, so I was not to say that like, okay, yeah, she was never home, mm-hmm. but I was like, just by myself at home watching TV a lot. Yeah. And I had a few pocket, like I had a small pocket of friends, but um, you know, I certainly was a very insular kid. Mm-hmm. But the friends that I had were, by and large, um, female. Mm-hmm. That's my roommate. <gasps> Roommate's coming home. Hi, Dan. Dan, your roommate. Hello. Um, you're on a podcast real n- about right now. It's live. It's a live podcast. It's a live podcast. Hi. Uh, t- uh, yell into the microphone from the kitchen. Hi, internet. Um, <laughs> oh, this actually won't be going out onto the internet. We're just going to put this on tape and they're going to be up for grabs in a library. <laughs> um, uh, should, we p- should we pause or? No. No. Great. Um, you're welcome to, um, in, uh, let me give you permission to socialize in your own home, Dan. Um, I'm <laughs> going to, you can just amble and do whatever you need to do. And we're, Brandon and I are going to continue to talk about our sad childhoods. Yes. <laughs> so feel free to listen in. Um, so I, my friends were primarily female. Mm-hmm. Was that your case as well? Uh, I think I had a, actually, yeah. <laughs> Again, by necessity, I think a little bit. Um, so it was like a healthy mix after a point. But I know uh, I went to this new school when I was in grade two, and there were three boys in the class. My, like myself. Whoa. One of them, yeah. Everyone else was a girl. And uh, I basically stayed with the same class until grade eight. But like people would leave and new people would come. But basically the core of my friends group were all girls. Um, now they're women. Uh, but... Uh, but yeah, it was sort of a healthy, healthy mix. I think in high school it was also a healthy mix, but I think my closer friends were women, generally. So if being a kind of sensitive kid and mm-hmm. being someone who's rather kind of like quiet and keeps themselves, mm-hmm. how does that person develop an interest in performing? Were you someone kind of interested in that as like a young child or did that sort of develop later? Uh, I think that was something that... Uh that is for sure something that I always uh, 
Oh my God, Dan is literally tiptoeing through his apartment. Oh, sorry. No, I, I need. I'm bringing that up because Dan, it doesn't like these mics are gonna pick that up. So like, do what you need to do. Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah. No. I think I was always very uh like uh, uh I always wanted to perform. I think so. The very first like play play that I was in, I was in grade five. I was ten years old, and our teacher had a a abridged uh, adapted version of Twelfth Night. And I campaigned oh. so hard to be Malvolio, and I gave it so hard, and all I wanted to do was just steal the focus for the entire play, and you know, wow. for those yellow. Um, Wait, how stockings. old are you? Ten, ten years old. Oh, okay. So it was always something that I, and I, I think, at that point, I think leading up to that point, I was known as I was sort of a bit of a class clown, uh, but not like the class clown that like is shitty at school <laughs> sort of deal. Like I was also like. I think a smart enough kid and whatever, but I was. So you were you were like a good student, yes. And the kind of class clown that you were, were you goofy or were you more clever? Oh, I was goofy. I was. Were you? I was in no way clever. I think I had. uh, I think I had moments where. No, I was just a ham. I was a huge ham. (laughs) I can't even. I can't even like mask it. I think I I was just such a like, um, like clear like making faces making stupid jokes mm-hmm. people you know quoting the simpsons or whatever like that was that was me basically for up until up until then so i think when when we became aware that we were doing that play and that there was a comic role i think it was so people were like oh brandon's probably gonna grab this role like no one knowing that i could act myself not knowing that i could perform or whatever um so it just kind of was endowed onto you yeah there's also there's also this thing I think with a lot of like young gay boys, which is, you know, they're kind of just waiting for that moment to <laughs> break out and and shine <laughs> exactly yeah, <laughs> which is a hundred percent a hundred percent what that was like. I was unafraid of just making a fool of myself uh, in front of everyone's parents, uh, my mom included. Uh, my mom who <laughs> does not uh, who who traditionally does not like feeling embarrassed or whatever mm-hmm. um but uh yeah so it's, it's just so funny i think that i was just completely unconcerned with making just the biggest fool of myself like i put on an english accent for this role which where does a 10 year old boy get that idea to put on an english right. accent in a play that is basically just recited by children uh i was so happy to put on the yellow uh stockings uh, the black garter and just sort of uh strut around the stage i remember uh performing performing something some of my lines and uh my friend rachel's mom was in the front row just keeling over with laughter because why is this boy doing this and so as you're, <laughs> and are you doing this also in the interest of getting laughs yes oh for sure and so when you get that yeah. can you remember that feeling oh yeah absolutely i was uh i was like what was I feeling? I mean, it felt good. <laughs> it felt like this is great. Was it also a little bit of like, yeah, give me more of that drug? Like, <laughs> I feel like that's probably the closest I've ever felt in my life to that. Like, you know, that like, if you ever hear like a like a hack stand up comedian sort of tell a story about like, I got the audience in the palm of my hand, you know, right, like, right, right, give right. them what they want. I hope they, you know, can't wait for the the close or whatever. I feel like that's the closest I've ever felt in my life really? to that specific feeling of like, 
oh boy, wait until I, uh, you know, put on my yellow stockings and uh, and wow them with this monologue. Are you aware of that point? Um, that uh, that you know, sort of humor and comedy can also, in great respect, equal power. Uh, I suppose maybe I don't know. Because <laughs> I know it's funny you mentioned kind of you know young gay boys wanting their moment to shine. I think I granted I was a late bloomer, but right. I was a very shy kid mm-hmm. outside of my home. Inside of my home, I was quite happy to riff and joke, often for the amusement of my mum. Okay, and I think I learned then, yes, and didn't really implement until later. But I was like, oh, I think. Being funny actually holds a lot of cachet. Yes. In terms of how, like, what it does for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wondered if you, kind of, in that instance of being up on a stage wanting to and then making a lot of people laugh, mm-hmm. if that kind of gives you this sense of, oh, kind of like puffing your chest out a little bit like that. Well, that feels good. Like, I th- I'm going to do that more. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And I, I think it gave me confidence to, uh, I know the next year we did. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream, and I really wanted to play Bottom, and I was like, "No, I got this. I totally got this." But I got Oberon instead. But I think, um, I think at least doing that first role definitely gave me a tremendous amount of. Um, for some reason, I felt I feel like I had found a degree of respect. Like I'd found my uh, uh, the thing that I was good at. That if you know, I may, your oeuvre. My oeuvre, yeah, my uh, my. Uh, <laughs> Was it my techni or whatever? I don't know. I just Greek. used the one French word I could remember. <laughs> we discussed this. I, I'm forgetting all of it. I here's here's something I want to maybe like linger on a little bit. But so you were able to sort of joke around with your mom a ton at home, mm-hmm. and she like would like laugh and stuff like that. Yeah, because my mom liked funny people. Okay, and I yeah. do, and I my uh, and I and I really do believe I just was wired that way anyway. I mean, my mom has said this always and I do agree she and I share the same brain yes so for as much as I look like my dad I really do behave and think like my mom Mm -hmm. but I also think it's pretty normal for kids to kind of want to do things to sort of endear themselves to their parents right particularly when they're quite young Mm -hmm. and I think I realized that like oh being funny gets me a long way so I'll do that Mm -hmm. yeah Sorry, but what were you yeah. about to ask about? I was just curious about that. I, I, I find it so... I'm so intrigued by people's repa- uh, 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 relationship with their parents. Uh, so, uh, for example, whenever I talk to someone uh, and they're like, you know, my mother's my best friend or whatever, I'm always like, wow, that's co- like, cool, good for, like, you know... Uh, and I, I'm not sort of like internalizing that as some sort of tragedy for myself, but I'm, I'm just sort of like that's fascinating you know like mm. how do you how do you how does that sort of happen um well i mean in terms of me also being funny like that was also i was also uh consciously unaware if you like <laughs> i realize those are two opposing things but like i also as a result of being born into a very uh emotionally traumatized home mm-hmm. as a result of my dad's leaving mm-hmm. um i had this kind of innate sense of like Gotta check your phone, check your phone, check your phone. Who is it? It is uh, my friend. No. My friend. Well, ignore it because you're doing a podcast right now. But I gotta. Uh, no, there it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I had, I very much had a sense of I need to make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. 
got to take care of people. I need to pacify people. Right. Um, and that was kind of something I felt from the jump because I remember being four or five mm-hmm. and I was in the front seat of the car because you and I are old enough that when we were kids, you were allowed to be that age and be in the front seat of a car. Yeah. Um, Is that not a thing anymore? Kids are not allowed to. Uh, no. It, well, it's kind of in relation to height now. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, it, it is it is generally frowned upon. If I think they tend to sort of, from what I've heard, mm-hmm. it's kind of like they don't want seven-year-olds or like kids under the age of seven to be in the front seat of a car. Interesting. Um, and so I'm in the passenger seat and my mom and I get into a car accident. It's not a huge accident. Like mm. no one's hurt. You know, no one, there aren't any casualties, but it's enough that it really scared my mom. So you can imagine then what that feeling, how that feeling is going to be sort of amplified within a kid, right? Right. I remember my mom being really scared. And I remember physically, like the fear rising up in my body, like I'm about to either scream or cry or whatever. And then I remember mm-hmm. physically pushing that feeling down, ch- making a choice to laugh mm. and then kind of paw at my mom mm. so that she would know that I was okay so she didn't have to worry about me. Mm. How old were you? Five. Really? Yeah. Because very uh, empathetic. Uh, well, I just, I, I've, I just was like that. It was that weird thing of like, well, I have a job to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it now. And oh. so, so my, my being, it didn't occur to me that being socially funny was um a good I- idea until I was like in my teens. Right. Like I w- I actually truly if you asked people who knew me as like when I was a kid like I don't think I was a funny kid as a matter of fact I think my mm-hmm. identity if you like was that I was just like very well behaved. Right. Like I don't think I was a terribly extraordinary child. I was a B student. <laughs> like there was right. not there wasn't anything I did that would have given someone the idea that I would have maybe wanted to Right pursue this necessarily well it's like it's sort of this weird thing where i I definitely sorry just to turn this into being about me again um, i mean it is your interview (laughs) so just don't feel too (laughs) self-conscious well it's like it's a thing where i feel i I definitely feel like they're like growing up there were definitely two different versions of me (laughs) so there's a version of me that was at home and i was never i never i never was funny or i never tried to be funny or i never like I was just very much this sort of straightforward kind of you know, never sort of joke like keep to myself. A stoic child. Pretty yeah, stoic stoic child with uh, what's another what's another term we can use? Um, tight upper lip. Tight upper lip, yeah. Um, There's a degree of la tristesse there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, I was pretty much sort of that kid at home, and then at school, I think maybe because of the uh, the stress or pressure of <laughs> of, of of that at home. I was very kind of like, I feel a lot more bubbly and 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 I think I was such a goofy ham because I think the environment at home where we are just sort of these, um, I guess, socialized to be very kind of like uh, uh, keep everything kind of close to the chest and that sort of thing. I mm-hmm. think at home at, at school I just found it very freeing to be. Uh, it's like there's there's an outlet yeah there's an (laughs) outlet there yeah so i think from the sounds of it you and i had sort of the equal opposite thing right um now when you 
are kind of then growing up and getting a bit older, at what point does it occur to you that I'm like, I would like to make acting the thing that I do? I don't think I ever actively made that decision <laughs> until I was in it. Um, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> well, because you did go to... Oh, to an arts high school. Right. But then also kind of even jumping ahead of that. Sure. You, I mean, when you went to university, didn't you take drama in university? I took theater for one year and I, I hated it. Did I was you? Not, yeah. It was super demanding, uh, and uh, I, I, I at the I think at the end of it, I was sort of like, um, I didn't. It was at U of T, which has I think a really great holistic sort of theater program. Like they, they uh, if you want to be a well-rounded theater professional who can act, but also knows a deal about production and and uh, and uh, design and that sort of thing, you go there, and it's a great idea. And a lot of people, a lot of people that I really respect went there because obviously, if you're if you're to be a good actor doesn't necessarily d- depend upon the school that you go to. It depends on your sort of like uh, work that you put in, that sort of thing. Right. But um, I uh, I think going through it for the one year that I was in it, I decided that I didn't want to graduate from university with a degree in this because it wasn't something that I felt particularly confident in doing. So I left that as a as the program that just focused on classic languages and um, and English. And then just did comedy shows. Uh, the college uh, at U of T that I went to had a, a yearly comedy show that I was a part of uh, with Ann and Jocelyn, actually. And uh, so I just did that every year, and I would do and other Pernell shows. And Pernell and Jocelyn Getty, uh, future yeah. friends and castmates of Brandon Hackett, Sunday yeah. Night Live. Yeah. I just thought I'd add that in. Well, at the time, they were concurrent friends. Uh, no, I think you guys are enemies. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm, 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 I'm gonna rewrite your life and actually just make it so that there yeah. was far more. It, there was a lot for you to overcome with them. It's like a Blade Runner 2049 moment where I, I listen. <laughs> I realize that instead I'm, I'm you were a, friends with them this whole time. Listen, I'm gonna I, be I a friend. I haven't seen the original Blade Runner. Oh yeah. I have no intention of seeing the new Blade Runner. And guess what? I could take or leave Harrison Ford and Ryan Gosling, so I am not in any rush to see Ooh, them in a movie together. I gotta tell you, Liam, that's totally fine. Uh, <laughs> I really like the first movie. I like the second one quite a bit too, but I also am not some dude who's gonna <laughs> try to proselytize to you uh, the virtues of of Blade Runner. Yeah, please don't. Um, um, <laughs> so you're so then you are kind of doing these yearly comedy reviews. Yeah. And then, at, so, I mean, I think it's interesting that you also go from being like this really kind of confident performer kid who wants to do that and get that reaction from people, mm-hmm. and then you find yourself in university finding yourself mm-hmm. not thinking that's something you could do. Well, I think it's because uh, in, in high school, so I went to an arts high school, and uh, I because everyone is awkward and bad in high school, uh, I, I didn't, uh, I mean, I, cra- I gradually learned how to kind of like be a, a better stage actor but I think I just after a point I was like I want to be a writer I want to play a playwright or something like that so getting to university and still being a teenager uh, who <laughs> this is awkward I think I just couldn't uh, I think I sort of liked different qualities in uh, in drama than what I was sort of being taught so I didn't I think I just sort of liked the rush of performing and the sort of validation of right. an audience more than I liked the craft of uh, acting itself uh, or or the idea of pursuing a, um, uh, a hardcore acting career. And you know, you are one of, you know, the handful of people that I've spoken to on this podcast who have articulated, you know, uh, 
their experience in drama school as being sort of a a fraught one because mm-hmm. like on the one hand yes there's like they do like the performing and the acting bit mm-hmm. but the sort of traditional approach or traditional trajectory of kind of that acting style and or process to them really was not mm-hmm. for them as w- either right and so then when you kind of are making the switch then in university um you're so you're not taking theater anymore but you're still doing theater Mm -hmm. so there's something then that you still must be getting then from the performing and the doing of it Mm -hmm. and so you're doing these comedy reviews (laughs) brandon just closed his eyes like he just was becoming so mindful yeah no i'm 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 registering everything he's saying sometimes i my brain kind of oh i like it yeah um and so so you graduate from university when 2010 and you start to like are you mindful of this point of like wanting to do comedy like of like trying to make that your career uh i think at that point uh i was because hmm. i feel like 2010 is a, around the time that i met you yeah yeah i think well i think we met around like 2010 2011 yeah uh so i I had been doing a lot of shows, and I feel I uh, and that was when I was starting to do shows at Comedy Bar, and uh, again I was doing that mainly for fun. But I and were th- was this improv or was this stand up or sketch? Okay, yeah. and who who was it with? Uh, it was this troupe called uh, Etched and Sketch that I was. Um, they were one of the, sort of like two comedy sketch comedy troops put together and produced by the Sketchersons uh, to sort of be some extra content. Uh, at Comedy Bar in the early days of Comedy Bar because Comedy Bar opened 20, uh, 2008. So I'd been doing sketch with them since 2008 while I was in university. And uh, I think I was just doing that for fun. I mean, I loved comedy, but I, I, I honestly couldn't at that point see any future in it. So in 2010, I decided I kind of wanted to take a break and I took a, I decided not to do any more performing. Um, and then uh, I kind of... Started miss it a little bit, but uh, in late 2010, like in October, I started. To, I took an improv class at Second City, mm-hmm. uh, just to try and. Um, I think I took a I took I took a break from performing because I wanted to just focus on writing and and focus on getting better at that, uh, because I felt that uh, performing for me was kind of overshadowing it a little bit. Um. So, uh, sorry, my slow <laughs> thoughts. I feel are no, not making no, a no. very fun podcast. No, no, no. I listen. First of all. Listen, mm-hmm. the whole point of this is not that it's fun. It's just about getting to know you. <laughs> I mean, it's not. I'm, I'm sorry. It's yeah. not. It's about getting to know you. And yeah. also, I just was thinking as you were, when you had mentioned kind of taking a break, because I've asked this of a few people, mm-hmm. were you someone who went, like, do you think part of your attitude of not being sure if acting was going to be your thing or if writing was going to be your th- thing? Like, um, mm-hmm. like, for example, when you were kind of taking that break, do you were you ever kind of in pursuit of thinking like, oh, maybe I'll get like a different kind of job? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I didn't know at the time I had a, <laughs> I had a job at a pension company. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll have this job for a little bit and then I'll figure it out. Uh, I think at the back of a lot of people's minds, a lot of people who like go to university and then finish their degree or whatever, a lot of people just sort of think, okay, well, I guess at some point I'll do a graduate degree or something. Like, so that, was in the back of my mind for a very long time. It's still in the back of my mind now. It's just something that doesn't go away. Right. That and the recurring dream where I've registered in a class 
uh, and I forgot to go to all the classes. Interesting. <laughs> and the exam is like tomorrow, and I have to cram. That I still have that dream, uh, probably once a month. I uh, wonder what that's in in relation to. I like just to like this is me totally inventing something. You might not feel this way at all, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of performers and writers sort of have this innate guilt over doing that job because by their estimation Mm -hmm. they just they kind of don't view it as being Mm -hmm. a proper job yes do you feel that way 100 percent. yeah and i wonder if maybe part of that that dream or that inclination is kind of attached to like i'm going to do this thing because this is not a real job so i'll go and find the thing that is that yeah i mean (laughs) every once in a while i fantasize about like (laughs) so weird uh but i fantasize about like uh leaving it all behind and just like (laughs) joining a not-for-profit and like or you know like being some sort of like counselor or something you know i'm just sort of like uh uh this one time last time i was at my mom's house uh i was just like uh, it was like around christmas time or something and uh, i was just watching tv there's this documentary about this this uh woman in in thailand who uh she's like an academic had this whole career and then at some point she gave it all up and became this buddhist monk uh and it's not common or particularly uh, uh permitted for women women to become um uh monks buddhist monks but she became a buddhist monk and was just sort of giving her life to sort of uh uh towards a sort of charity and and asceticism and that sort of thing and i remember watching that and being like oh wow <laughs> that looks so nice <laughs> like just so stressed out by all of the feelings of guilt or whatever i have about this industry and <laughs> being like maybe buddhist monk though <laughs> like, maybe you, that's me do you feel like part of your feeling about this not being a proper job is because you were not raised in an environment where maybe you were sort of encouraged to view it as being a proper job? Uh, I mean, probably. Like, uh, I guess because I am sort of a second generation kid uh, who who's sort of like part of whose training in the world is, uh, you know, Get your get get your education, get your degree, and then get a good job, and then grab onto that job for the rest of your life, right. and then you know, and then just work every day, and that's that's what life is. But that, but you know, I wonder too, frankly, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a chance that even if you had grown up in an environment mm-hmm. where that was encouraged, that you would have felt that way anyway, because you know, like I grew up in a house where that was encouraged, and like pursuing your dreams, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 but the really, way, like the way that you just were like, oh, sorry, the the house you grew up in, where I don't know, you were like encouraged. <laughs> yeah, that is the house I grew up in. Yeah. Um. But here's the thing. But I, you know, my mom was all for me pursuing that. But I still carried a huge sense of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because I, like, there were a good many years where every time I finished writing something, I was really sure I'd get the impulse to write out of my system, and then I'd go and find proper job right you know because i just think it's like mm-hmm. it's just that weird anxiety and the thing that i've kind of um built as a balance in my brain is here, here's the deal i don't think writing or acting is a proper job but mm-hmm. i do think it's an essential job okay and i've been able to sort of marry those two ideas in my brain so that i don't go crazy what if all that you write is um three minute long scenes about some guy who 
some guy that pooped their pants. So not so to be clear, he's not. They're not pooping their pants. They're pooping they pants. They poop they pants. They poop they pants. <laughs> what if that's the writing job as per uh, sketch comedy? Um, <laughs> the job that I currently am employed. Uh, well, I in. can't. <laughs> I mean, I cannot actually recall the last scene that you were in where you had, where you had to poop your pants. Poop they pants. Poop they pants. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think. But here's the thing. It's like, okay, maybe that scene isn't going to change the world, but it is like going to make someone laugh. And guess what? That feels good. Okay. What if the person that laughs is like, uh, <laughs> what if it's like Sean Spicer or something? <laughs> um, what if it's the wrong guy? I mean, I think the thing with Sean, and I do call him that because he's <laughs> my close and personal friend. Sean, Sean, he's everyone's friend now. Um, <laughs> now I that mean, he's in every. <laughs> now that he was in the Emmys. And Harvard's um, ha- got him as a fellowship. Uh, conversation in the list right i mean i th- here's the deal is like um weirdly mm. like even sean spicer is like allowed to laugh at something okay and not to say that he deserves it but he like he is allowed to mm. I don't know. I mean, you did bring <laughs> up a pretty tough example. But anyway, I agree with you. Uh, uh, <laughs> I agree. So when you are starting, so mm-hmm. so you're kind of having this, you know, sense of maybe kind of wanting to potentially kind of direct your attention elsewhere. Maybe you'll pursue something different, and yet you do start doing these improv classes to mm-hmm. sort of get back into it because you miss it. Yeah, and also does just sort of uh, work a different part of my brain too, and sort of kind of connect where. Uh, Second City, I had no, I knew wrote their shows through improv, and I had no idea how that worked because I was such a like like a technical writer. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, so I wanted to sort of at least be able to get better at comedy writing through kind of learning that method a little bit and open myself up a bit. When you started um, taking improv classes, did you start off at level A? Yeah, I started right at the bottom. Because I remember, and now or you're beginning. here. Um, <laughs> start at the bottom, now you're here. <laughs> I should say beginning uh, rather than bottom, bottom. Um, but I remember, because by the time you were in level C, mm-hmm. that is, of course, when you auditioned for and then got into mm-hmm. something that at Second City uh, used to be called The Bench, which, right? Yeah. And that, because that was a program that uh, was sort of built in the interest of helping to cast actors who Second City had an interest in, but maybe didn't have placement for. But mm-hmm. it was a way for them to be directed, yeah. get stage time, get better. And, you know, the way that I got to know you was because mm-hmm. out of nowhere, there was like this person mm-hmm. who was in level C mm-hmm. who managed to like get into the bench with like these extremely seasoned improvisers, like mm-hmm. many of whom had like years on you in the comedy community. Oh, Jesus. Don't, uh, I mean, for sure, that's all I could think when I got on the bench was like, oops. <laughs> well, uh, but I remember seeing you because I saw that show because I, my friends in that show would have been like Chris Bowman, Haley Kellett, mm-hmm. Devin Highland. Uh, oh, wait, was Devin not in that one? No, Chris. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. Was Chris? Yeah. Oh, no. no, wait, Chris Bowman and Haley weren't, but like Paloma was in that one. Haley was. Haley, Paloma, Sarah Hillier, Devin. Mandy Sellers? Yes, Mandy Sellers and... Uh, Richard Young. Right. And I remember watching that show being knowing that you were the level C guy and I was like, "Oh my god, he's so good." Well, that's so kind. Thank you. But in the throes of that, you you did feel self-conscious over Very, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky because I had had uh those two years of sketch comedy like 
experience the in that troop etched and sketch we would uh we wrote and performed a new show every other week so we were sort of doing a half sketchersons kind of deal mm-hmm. so we we had that and uh i, I think yeah i was very i was very lucky kind of g- getting into that to be perfectly honest i mean i i uh and i, I ideally as awful as i feel when i kind of get to the next level and i feel very outclassed by everyone else uh i that is sort of how i do prefer my uh, career to go like i always prefer to uh be challenged by people who are way better than i am uh and then hopefully rise to a level where you know i don't feel like i'm so outclassed and uh yeah but i mean i just would also say not to not to be too like sentimental about it because as we've discussed that's not my style (laughs) but i mean you weren't lucky to get in you got in because you were good thank you Oh, but I mean, but uh, but here's the thing. But why else would they bring you in? Um, like, why else would they cat? Like, they're not looking to do you a favor. <laughs> frankly, let's help this poor dying actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember when you came in and you said you had cancer, but then actually you didn't. But you just wanted a sympathy <laughs> vote. Um, yeah. So when you're doing the bench, then mm-hmm. are you thinking about that point? Like, oh, maybe I want to kind of carry on doing the second city trajectory yeah absolutely i think when i got uh when i got the bench that was around the time that i had started to fall in love with performing again and i'd started to feel like i could do improv and uh i had started to grasp that sort of connection between uh or the the uh methodology behind uh writing on your feet the sort of improv uh yeah because i can imagine for you improv is actually it is a nice combination of the two because Mm -hmm. as someone who wants to act and then also like better himself as an actor and writer i mean the beauty of improv is that you are exactly what you said you're doing both mm-hmm. you're writing on your feet and then you are facilitating the material as it's kind of coming out of your mouth yes absolutely right yeah uh so it uh uh i think at around that time then uh that was yeah that was sort of i i definitely bought in uh very hard into the into the second city and um you know i really loved loved the company and kind of what it stood you know like the the uh, that was when i was starting exposed to all of the archive material uh stuff from books that i had read you know about like chicago reviews toronto reviews and people and that sort of thing uh i mean i watched all of the archive i got really into it uh you know i I went through the conservatory program and and uh, had our you know had our show and then was hired maybe about two weeks later for for one of the edco sort of uh uh, uh, groups because Edco is the education company, and the idea is that you're doing some archival, some original material for p- schools, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, or sometimes you know, they they uh, bust out a couple people to um, some sort of like I think my first gig with Second City was we did uh, we did a uh, an improv show uh, at uh, uh, a learning annex. Uh, so it wasn't for like kids like it was for you know adults who needed to get their ged or whatever um so there's so many different like little gigs that you know they could sort of send you out on so that was my first gig for second city and then i did like the edco show which was yeah which was what you just described and then a few years later i got torco and then main stage and that sort of thing when you're doing that when you're in the education company by that point are you mindful of wanting main stage as a goal Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When it was when I was in after the bench and while I was in con, that was was what I wanted was main stage as a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my thing. I, I think I was just telling someone this yesterday, but my my whole thing is like I feel like I I have so much anxiety about really uh, 
really gunning for something when I when there's so much when, when I have no control over the outcome. So the idea of like you know doing con and wanting to be on main stage and knowing that there's so many people who want main stage and who are ready for main stage and myself not feeling ready and knowing that I'd have to do more improv shows and that sort of thing. Uh, it um, to me that was so daunting. But I feel like the way that I was able to kind of keep myself afloat was number one. I obviously I loved. I loved creating stuff, but also I, uh, I held no, um, I was not, uh, so devoted to the idea of myself as an actor, <laughs> you know? So, so I feel like I just loved performing and anytime I would get like a criticism, uh, for a performance sort of thing, I'd be able to just sort of change it, but it would never like affect my self-esteem or my emotion or whatever because I'd just sort of in the back of my head I'd always be like ah, I'm not a great actor anyway I mean I'm just like a hammy performer you know like a, a sketch comedy performer and I feel like uh, I feel like having basically like a low acting self-esteem but just a love for performing anyway at least buoyed me enough so that I wasn't always down kind of trying to get up in the company if that makes any sense yeah well i mean i also think you know a way of sort of uh, it's funny i mean i think listening to that i also wonder if there are two other things at play because you're when you're like oh god there are all these other great people mm. um and, and i know the competition is so stiff to get this one thing like i also personally feel and i've discussed this on the show before which is like it is very vulnerable to want something. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and especially to articulate it, because then let's say you're like, okay, I want this thing. And then it doesn't happen. It, it, it's very, it's very easy then to sort of feel like, Oh God, like you're feeling sort of um, beaten down, but in a public way, because people are now aware of the fact that this thing didn't come to fruition for you. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's why you hear about, um, you know, actors or writers not really talking about the foundational state of maybe something that they're pitching or that they're working on because mm-hmm. the number of things that don't go. Yes. And then they don't have to like ugh, explain that. Mm-hmm. And then and also it's vulnerable vulnerable to yourself because when you admit that you want something and then don't get it, you have to deal with that. Yeah. And I think I wonder if part of that's also related to you when you're when you talk about being like, oh, well, I'm not really the best actor and sort of you're almost like giving yourself a pass mm-hmm. for that low self-esteem because it's like then if you care about it then you really ca- have to care about it like yes. and then there's and then your feelings get hurt if you do get a criticism or whatever like i i wonder if there's also something kind of i don't know that i'm articulating this terribly well but if there's something slightly protective that you're doing to yourself if you're distancing mm-hmm. yourself from the idea of being a good actor like oh well I got this criticism, but that's fine because guess what? I'm not a great actor anyway, so it doesn't matter. I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, for sure, you know, like I, I uh, obviously I do care a little bit about, you know, uh, or have cared a little bit about it. Or, or, and I would say the fact that I've stuck with it through uh, that grade five production of Twelfth Night to to now uh, is somewhat indicative of the fact that I do care about it. Right. And it does. It is a. It is in a sense a. Uh, uh, it gives me a lot of vitality and, uh, uh, you know, uh, purpose to be performing. But uh, so it is absolutely a protective thing where I'm just sort of like, eh, I'm not great. At, you know, like if I don't get, if I don't get the performance, the acting role that I, I, you know, auditioned for, that I'm just sort of like, 
Well, yeah, look, whatever. Well, of course, because guess what? Oh, it doesn't matter, because guess what? I'm not a real actor anyway, so whatever. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, I'm relating to that only because, you know, when I sort of first started socializing amongst, like, the training center crowd when I first moved to the city, mm. you know, the number of people who would call themselves actors or writers or improvisers who were also garbage at it. Mm. I also was like, oh, my God, I don't ever want to be that person mm-hmm. who labels themselves as something that they're completely terrible at. I'm terrified. That's, I think that's I'm terrified of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I so that is why I really like that's why for the longest time I didn't articulate any interest in acting for a long time. Sure. Because not unlike yourself and actually a lot of people that I've interviewed, like I knew I didn't want to do like a conventional acting yeah. route. Yeah. Like I didn't want to, uh, like I didn't want to do plays, and I didn't want to do improv, and I didn't want to like, I I wanted to have the kind of thing where I could write for myself and be in that. Like I knew I could do that, mm-hmm. and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but you know, I kept my desire to act to myself for a very long time mm-hmm. because I also just was totally fearful of like, oh my god, like what if. Mm. Like what if I say that I want that or that I am that, and then someone says, "Oh, but God, that's oh, but you're not yeah. good." So why would you even it's, bother? It's yeah, no, it's it's an intensely yeah. That's to, to this day, I still you know I I feel scared telling people, "Oh, I want to write or I want to write more or I've written on this or I've done whatever or, you know." Like I, I'm a comedy writer because I I'm always just sort of like. Oh, does this person have like a low opinion of me? Are they, or you know, if I see someone surprised by that, then I'm just sort of like, oh, they think I'm an idiot. They think but I'm here's so the thing: so but to that person, they don't matter. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that we need to remind ourselves of, like to the person who's going to be judgmental of or um, criticizing our, I don't know, vocation or desire for such or whatever. Like mm-hmm. they're not the person that we need to care about. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're no, not worth sure. our. They're not worth our time. They're not worth our mental energy. And also, who are they, not to sound totally trite here, but like, who are they to judge? Like, who's yeah. the like who's the person reacting to you, raising their eyebrows when you tell them that mm-hmm. you're an actor? Who cares about them? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, and I know easier <laughs> said than done, but like, sometimes it's also like, I don't know, fake it till you make it. Like, just train yourself to ig- like, mm-hmm. ignore that person and ignore that voice that's going to make you doubt yourself and your abilities you know what i mean like and also guess what the person who's probably also maybe being surprised by you saying you want to be an actor or a writer Mm -hmm. guess what you're on main stage they're not yeah like i I, like (laughs) unless it's someone on main stage (laughs) yeah it's just you're who's had the job it's everyone on main stage just (laughs) being like brandon we just don't think you should be here (laughs) oh my god so when you do get main stage then Mm -hmm. so you're on the touring company for how long just a year yeah and you're hired, and mm-hmm. your feeling about that is what? Oh, uh, pure anxiety every day. Total em- imposter syndrome every day for the two and a half months that we are in process, that we're writing the show every day. I'm just sort of like, I don't belong here. <laughs> I should, uh, I, I, someone needs to kick me down some stairs uh, out of this building because, oops, <laughs> I've, I've just ruined the company. Um, yeah, you. Wow, remember that time that Brandon Hackett single-handedly destroyed second city yeah <laughs> just by him being hired yeah. yeah 40 or whatever however many, many is at toronto branches has, has been uh but um yeah so it was it was like weird it was um uh i was obviously grateful to do it uh but you know it um i definitely felt 
very strongly that I ought not to be there. <laughs> are there are there things that you do to sort of help yourself get out of an anxious mindset? Uh yeah, but they don't work. Uh, <laughs> no, I I don't know. I guess talking myself down from it. I mean, I, I think where that started to go away for me was uh, I um, because it was very similar to the bench. Where with the bench, I uh, when I was on the bench, I was on the bench with all these people that I had known from before, people who were doing improv before I'd even taken classes. Uh, so I felt very outclassed, and when I joined main stage, was I was very outclassed. I think where I started to relax was when I. This is gonna sound awful, but when I, um, in the improv sets, stopped worrying about being good or like technically perfect, and just concerned myself with having fun in the moment, like being very in the moment. Yes, listening, you know, and responding, and. Uh, even being extremely silly, like letting myself be silly and 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 sort of following the fun of uh, the silliness, uh, that was when I and I remember the exact improv set where I was able to breathe and think, "Huh, I can do this." Tell us about that. Uh, it's not even an interesting story. It was like I think it was like a. It was honestly just like a, a little lark. Like we, were, <laughs> I think it was a scene in a dentist's office. And all I did was respond very naturally to the offers. Be- Becky also is an incredible improviser. Becky and I'm Johnson, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. Was aware of, uh, you know, my state of mind and my feelings, and very empathetic. Uh, and uh, she was just giving a lot of great offers, and I was just responding and trying to give offers of my own. And I remember at that moment, uh, feeling in the audience laugh and feeling very natural and feeling like I didn't have to work so hard to be good at it. Uh, that was right when I was like, I can do this job, I like this job, and I'm gonna just have fun. And then, uh, for, you know, I just uh, kept having more and more sets where that was the case, and eventually, uh, the number of uh, sets where I uh, liked myself and liked what I was doing uh, uh, surpassed the number of sets where I would go home and uh, toss and turn at night and think about how awful a job I was doing. Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, the thing that's so tricky particularly about performing comedy in front of people is, you know, the litmus test for success and failure is so immediately clear. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you know, as I've said before, you know, to react to something dramatically is not to cry. Mm -hmm. But to react to something comedically is to laugh. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not getting that kind of reaction straight away, it can just be such... I mean, such a huge, just personal letdown for yourself mm-hmm. of like, oh, God, no. You know, and if you're not feeling like you're doing as good as you could be, and if you're already feeling anxious and to use your word like an imposter for being there to begin with, I'm sure that is totally helping to inform mm-hmm. that false narrative in your brain of like, see, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I guess I'm not good. Yeah. I guess I'm, and yet, you know, every person I've spoke that I've spoken to, uh, who's done main stage, you know, the golden thread connecting all of you is like the tremendous doubt that runs through your brain of like mm-hmm. being so sure that you're an unfunny person while you're there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it that absolutely is something that you guys all have in common. And I think it's just very, it's also a very natural thing when you are, um, you know, for a significant chunk of your time there needing to be very analytical about the work that you're doing, mm. you know, 
I think because comedy tends to be a very sort of um, spontaneous and emotional thing, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of difficult to have that in equal measure, but then also be thinking so heavily about the thing that you're doing when you're in process building a show. Mm -hmm. But the confidence that you eventually build, does that carry forward then into your second process? Are you feeling less anxious about it? then yeah absolutely i think i threw myself into the second and third processes with uh such um joy and elan and uh what uh, a joy and what <laughs> oh it's uh e accent aigu l-a-n elan <laughs> you know the, the <laughs> if you think that you can just on this podcast uh. get away with being multilingual <laughs> in a very sort of cavalier Frasier kind of way. Right. I just can't have it. What have I used? I've, I've used French. I've used some Japanese. Greek. Did I? Oh yeah, Japanese and Greek. And uh, I don't know if I've thrown out any Latin yet. Yeah, no, I think you did. Did I? I think you did. I took note of it one time, and I was like, I'll let this one go. <laughs> um. Well. Uh, uh. Sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> well, just you going forward. You know, you kind of felt yeah. like you were able to sort of let go of some of those stresses of needing to be perfect. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then that, of course, imbues what you're doing with far more joy, mm-hmm. which, of course, is such an infectious thing that carries forward. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think my second show, I was just. Uh, I mean, I will often remark that the second show was a lot of fun for me, but it was exhausting because all of my scenes I basically was yelling <laughs> just the whole time <laughs> I just being the biggest character I could play because it was just so uh, I just it was giving it all uh, uh, in the most literal way imaginable uh, see so yeah, I had the car the Chevy Cruze scene where I just sort of like uh, play an over the top actor and uh, oh god that made me laugh so hard well I'm glad thank you oh yeah that was really funny but it's interesting though because I can imagine how if you're in the throes of process and you're just pitching like so much mm-hmm. and of course you Brandon Hackett along with the other actors have no idea what's going to be chosen for the show mm-hmm. so then you, <laughs> you finally then get your running order and you're like wow I'm the things that I'm doing are all the really big energy stuff <laughs> Whew, okay yeah. like I remember um, uh, you know so Kevin Vidal is a you know mutual friend of ours mm-hmm. and I remember years ago um, when he was going into his second process uh, on main stage so he had done we can be heroes and i remember being like so you know are there things like going to this process that you think you want to like work on or do or you know just kind of having a casual chit chat and i remember him just saying like i'd really love to move less in the next show mm, yeah because <laughs> his first show was very physical and very big energy and, and he, he also took over from nigel right who's right. also very uh physical absolutely so the show that he transitioned uh, into slash out of was also a very physical one. Right. And I think he just, he, I remember he was like, yeah, like at the end of every show, I'm just so fucking tired. And then, <laughs> and, but then, if, but it's like, he's pitching all that physical stuff, not knowing that, you know, the bulk of that is going to get in. You know what I mean? Like, it's just such a, it, you just, you don't know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess as we wind down from this, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we've really caught up to you now, present day. Present day. Present day. Here I am. Here I am in my mansion with my riches. Oh, um, sorry. You mean the mansion with riches that also is occupied by many a cardboard cat home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this I, I think, Persian rug covered in uh, dust bunnies because we don't have a vacuum. Okay. I wanted to actually address that because, one, when, you, when I stepped in, you're like, oh, God, sorry. 
you know, we have two cats now. This place probably smells like cats. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know that this carpet is a huge odor eater, right? I do now. <laughs> and so, no joke, the, like the cat smell could largely honest to god be coming so much from this rug like i sure. really do think you should okay okay invest in just get a small lightweight vacuum yeah sprinkle this rug in like um baking soda let it sit for a bit mm-hmm. that's gonna help absorb some of the odors and then you just vacuum it up i would also love to shampoo this carpet because it hasn't um this was owned by james gangle before oh. Oh. And he has a cat or two. Okay. Had a cat or two or whatever. But uh So here's what you should do. Mm-hmm. You should vacuum it first. Of course. And then shampoo it mm-hmm. and then do that whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, if you shampoo it first, I mean all the cat hairs are then just gonna get embedded into your rug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it'll turn gray and it'll be lovely in your color. And then and then it'll finally match the hue of my single gray braid. Perfect. <laughs> my single gray braid, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love you to have a Padawan braid that's gray. <laughs> hey everyone, it's me. I'm shopping at Jazz Casuals and I just need to find the perfect scrunchie for my single gray braid. Um so oh, now the way the question that I ask everybody to end this podcast is this. Okay. Uh-huh. So I'll give let me give you the rules first. Okay. Okay. Cuz I feel like you're someone who would respond to structure. Sure. Okay. So it can be as recent as you'd like it to be, it can be from as long ago as you'd like to be. Mm-hmm. It can be something incredibly eventful or not. Mm-hmm. But just with our audience, mm-hmm. could you share a happy memory? A happy memory. Uh okay. It can be personal. It could be professional. It And also, in you sharing the happy memory, it doesn't mean that it's your happiest. It's just a happy memory. Just a happy memory. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. So, fairly recently, uh, a friend of mine, a uh, long-time friend of mine, uh, and I won't say her name just to protect her, to protect her. Uh, this is like a nice story, but it's like her privacy, I suppose. Yeah, but in this also, I mean, she is a witness protection, so it's important to be sensitive. This is true. Um, uh, she was in a relationship with a really great person for a while, and then they broke up for a few years, and then uh, there's some stuff that happened, some family stuff and whatever, and Anyway, they were uh, apart for a couple of years. They got back together. and um, Did you miss out on the part, sir, where I said I wanted this to be a, a happy memory? <laughs> oh, it's building up. It's okay, building okay, great, great, great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they, uh, anyway, at some point they sort of found each other again and then had this sort of like, uh, ended up having this like really long, nice relationship. And uh, fairly recently, I think as of May or something, uh, they just got, uh, they got engaged. Uh, and I remember... Uh, talking to her like a couple days after the engagement like we were hanging out we hadn't hung out in a while and uh, she's talking about the engagement and how really nice it was and then at that moment we were sort of talking about it I was sort of thinking about everything that's happened in her life and his life and their lives and, and blah 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 and uh, I remember getting very overwhelmed by that because I was just so happy for both of them and I'm sort of like I think within this sort of uh, world where on social media everything is bad news and arguing all the time and, uh, uh, you know, people are garbage and <laughs> life is, <laughs> is sad often. I, I, uh, the, the very thought that um, two people whom I 
really loved and respected and thought deserved all happiness. Uh, we're able to find each other again and um, seemed like a perfect match and seemed mature and moving towards this really great life that they were building towards each other and that they were able to kind of like um, take strength from and give strength to each other, I thought was very moving. So I was happy that in this world of terrible news and awful feelings a lot of the time, <laughs> two lovely people uh, were able to take that next step. And we should finally say mm-hmm. that the name of that couple was, you guessed it, Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito. <laughs> Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito. They separated and then they <laughs> got back together. Oh my God, I would love being Rhea Perlman's uh, friend for like years. Like, oh my God. I would just drop, just casually name drop for every, in every conversation. I mean, my friend Rhea Perlman, sorry, is, um, <laughs> thanks for talking to me, Brandon. Thank you for having me on. Oh my God, my pleasure. And have a great show tonight. Thank you very much. Two shows. We have two shows. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh fuck. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.